910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. So Chris, my husband tells me that I'm not a very good storyteller sometimes. He says I use pronouns like he, she, or they, and I never define who he, she, or they are. He says, I leave leave details out that make it hard to understand the point of my story. And to be fair, he's right. I I do confess that I probably leave much to be desired as a storyteller. But do you know who the perfect storyteller is? I'm guessing that since we're talking about the perfect anything and we're doing a series about Jesus, the answer is Jesus. That's right. Typical youth group answer, Jesus, Bible, God. (laughs) right? That's right. And you're right. He is the perfect storyteller. That's what the parables are. Stories Jesus told to illustrate a point about the kingdom of God. But, you know, like your stories, he doesn't spell everything out either. But in his case, that's intentional. And he has a really good reason for doing it. He does. And he gives us the reason in Matthew 13, Luke 8, and Mark 4. So if all three Synoptic Gospels has it, must be important. In fact, they're all basically the same passage, and they all have a heading, the purpose of the parables. Pretty straightforward. Here's what Mark 4, 10 to 12 says. And when he, Jesus, was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. In this episode, we're going to look at some of Jesus's parables and the biblical teachings that go along with the theme of that parable. Let's start with another teaching of Jesus that explains the explanation of the purpose of the parables. We find it in Luke 12, verses 51 to 53. Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So in a nutshell, the parables are meant to divide. And that might sound harsh or strange, especially since most of us can probably think of places where Jesus talks a lot about unity. But rest assured, he's not contradicting himself. This passage and others on division and the passages on unity are addressing two different things. So let's talk about the division first. While the theme of the entire Bible is God's redemptive plan for his people, there's a sub-theme of division. The divide between the godly line and the ungodly line, the people who belong to God and the people who don't. We see it beginning in Genesis with the division between Cain and Seth and their lines, and it continues all the way through all 66 books until Revelation with the division of the wicked and the righteous. The parables are part of this. The parables Jesus told are meant to be understood by those who belong to God, but their meaning is hidden even seeming foolish to those who do not belong to God. That's what Jesus meant when he quoted Isaiah, which was part of that verse that says, 
They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Their hearts are dead, so they're unable to fully understand the things of God. But this says that there's an intentional spiritual blindness on unbelievers to keep them from understanding the parables. Yeah, and that might be really, really hard to hear, and it may seem unfair to our human ears, but the reality is that we are all spiritually blind unless and until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. And we deserve that spiritual blindness because we've sinned against the almighty God. And because of that, we're under God's wrath and we're separated from him. We're his enemies. As Colossians 1.21 says, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Why would God share the secrets of his kingdom with his enemies? But because God is merciful, he chose a people to save for himself. And for those he chose to save, he regenerated their hearts and brought us to Jesus, opened their eyes to spiritual truths and made us his sons and daughters. We're no longer God's enemies, but we're part of God's family. And because of that, he lets us in on the teachings in scripture, including the meaning of Jesus's parables. And given all that you just said, Chris, it makes perfect sense that there's a great divide between believers and unbelievers. But how about Jesus's teaching on unity? Well, obviously, like we said, Jesus didn't contradict himself. When he says there needs to be unity, he's talking about within the community of believers, the church. And this falls right in with the topic of Jesus's parables. As a way of fostering unity within the church, Jesus teaches his people principles and truths about the kingdom of God, which we as believers are citizens of. As Jesus says to his disciples at the end of the purpose of the parable passage that we read earlier, he says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's the end of the scripture. All right, so let's get started with looking at some of Jesus's parables. And we're going to start by looking at a group of seven parables that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. All seven show us truths about the kingdom of God and all go right along with what we were just talking about, the division between believers and unbelievers, sometimes even within the church. Right. This first parable of the group is the parable of the sower found in Matthew 13, three through nine, but it's also found in Mark and Luke's gospels as well. Jesus tells this one out loud to the crowd listening. Jesus says, a sower went out to sow and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. So after Jesus tells this parable, his apostles and other disciples who were following go to him and ask him, why is he speaking in parables to the crowd? It was then that Jesus told his disciples the purpose of the parables that we read. And it's only to his disciples, the apostles and disciples, that Jesus explains the parable of the sower and tells them six more parables. 
Again, this is because the secrets of the kingdom of God are for God's own only. Right. So here's how Jesus explains the parable of the sower to him. He says, and I'm quoting scripture, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. This parable definitely shows a divide between believers and unbelievers, but it also shows that the line between believers and unbelievers is not always as black and white as it might seem. The ground in this parable is a person's spiritual condition, and the seed is the gospel message. First, two obvious illustrations. Unbelievers are the ground that never accepts the gospel message because they don't understand it, and Satan snatches it away. And believers are the ones who hear the gospel, understand it, and bear fruit of their salvation. There are other teachings in the Bible that back both of these up. First, the unbeliever who has the gospel message snatched away by Satan so they never understand it. Second Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So unless a person's saved, they are enemies of God and are kept from understanding God's word and truths. Part of how God accomplishes this is by allowing Satan to blind unbelievers to the gospel. That's what Jesus is illustrating in the parable. That's right. And for the believer, a regenerated heart is the good ground the gospel falls on. Everyone, absolutely everyone who God chose to save will at some point in their life come to Christ in sincere belief. And when we're brought to Jesus and saved, we get the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, sanctifying us. There'll be fruit from that salvation. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 12, 33 to 35. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Okay, so now how about those in between? Those whose status as a believer or unbeliever isn't so cut and dry, at least not to humans. Jesus says the seed that fell on rocky ground immediately sprang up, but since the soil was shallow, the sun scorched and killed them. Jesus explains that these are people who, because they have no roots, when trials and persecutions come, they fall away. Sadly, this describes many who claim to be Christians today. These are the people who attend church or profess to be a Christian for what they can get out of God. This would be the word of faith movement in a nutshell. Believe and you'll be showered with rewards and blessings. Yet Paul tells us in Romans eleven thirty five, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid. God owes us 
nothing, absolutely nothing. And for those that he has saved, if he never did anything for us or never gave us anything else for our whole entire lives except salvation, he will have given us more than we deserve by far. Amen to that. And of course, we all know that God does give his children so much more than just salvation. He does pour blessings out on us. But sometimes those blessings include persecutions and trials. The point is, is that if you're following Jesus for the perks you can get, you don't really belong to Jesus. And to your point, Chris, this is exactly why the Word of Faith movement is heresy and why the quote-unquote teachers in the Word of Faith movement are false teachers and they're dangerous. Absolutely. Okay, the last group are the seed that fell among thorns, where the thorns grew up and choked them. They're similar to the seeds on the rocky ground. Jesus says these people are choked by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. They're similar in that they're not really believers and they're following Jesus for selfish and ingenuine reasons. They might not be looking for what they can get out of God per se. Maybe they like going to church. Maybe they like hanging out with Christians. Maybe they even like serving others and doing work in the community. But they're not willing to just be in the world as Christians are called. They are of the world. They're embracing worldly things. You know, this immediately makes me think of those who water down the truth of God to be more relevant and palpable to the world or who make God fit in their box. A few examples would be those who see God as a benevolent old man who just winks at sin or those who go to church on Sunday, but then on Monday they're engaging in unethical business practices to get ahead. It can even be churches who ordain homosexuals as pastors. Eventually, their worldview and biblical truth are going to crash. They are. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 24 to 26, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Rose, to use a cliche, where the rubber meets the road, this is exactly what happens when something we may feel or believe contradicts what God's word says. How do we respond? Someone who does not truly belong to Jesus will water scripture down to make Jesus's words fit their beliefs. If, however, we're truly a believer, then we should and hopefully will heed the words of Paul in Romans 12 too, which says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right. And just to wrap up with how this parable pertains to the kingdom of God, it shows that not everyone who claims to be a citizen of the kingdom of God actually is. But for those of us that are, God will sanctify us and gift us to bear fruit for the kingdom. And our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom of God is to spread the word, spread the seed, the gospel message to everybody, and then let God worry about sorting out what kind of ground it falls on. Jesus ends this parable with, he who has ears, let him hear. Boy, we see that all the way through Revelation. You know, Jesus is saying we are never to change the gospel message. While we may tailor our delivery for the audience, the actual gospel message should never be changed or altered in any way. For those who have been regenerated, they need to hear and will understand and accept the biblical truth. 
We don't need to water anything down or sugarcoat it. In fact, we're commanded not to. Exactly. And for those who haven't been regenerated, well, as we saw, no matter what, they're not going to respond to the gospel anyway. So there's no point, again, in altering it. Okay, so let's move on. So right after this parable, Jesus tells another one, again, just to the disciples, that emphasizes this point further. It's in Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. And like the parable of the sower, it's also found in Mark and Luke. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Let's start with the explanation Jesus gives of this parable in Matthew 13, 37 to 43. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So just like in the parable of the sower, Jesus is showing us that right now within the kingdom of God on earth, in other words, the visible church, there's unbelievers mixed in with believers. You know, Chris, even a church who's preaching the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and who's immersing their people in the Bible can still have those in their midst who aren't real believers. It started in Jesus's time with Judas Iscariot, and it's continued throughout history ever since, and it will continue until Jesus comes back. And while we're to call out false teaching and not allow it in our church, absolutely, it's not for us to judge an individual's saved status in our church. That's for Jesus to do, not us. We can stop them from teaching false teaching or heresy, but we're not to judge their save status. In fact, if we try to sort the weeds and wheat ourselves, we could be doing more harm than good. To quote Augustine, those who are weeds today may be wheat tomorrow. That's exactly right. I love that quote. And I always think of him when I think of that parable. After the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds, Jesus tells two short parables about a mustard seed and leaven. Matthew 13, 31 to 33 says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, mustard seeds aren't actually the smallest of all seeds, but they would have been the smallest of seeds used by Jesus's original audience. Jesus's point is that like the little seemingly insignificant mustard seed, God's kingdom on earth starts out very small with humble beginnings. Remember, the king in the kingdom came to earth as a baby born in a stable. But like the mustard seed that grows into a tree, the kingdom of God becomes so large that no one can possibly ignore it because it's a tree. (laughs) That's exactly right. It's the same with the parable of the leaven. A little bit of leaven causes a whole batch of dough to rise. Matthew Henry reminds us that yeast, and this is his quote, works silently and insensibly, yet strongly and irresistibly. Another great quote. Yeah. The kingdom of God works the same way. Again, it shows the small, humble beginnings of the kingdom of God on earth. But also sometimes it may seem like we, as God's people, are a small group. You only have to turn on the TV to get the impression that evil is winning the day. It seems like those opposed to God are redefining everything while biblical truth and values are being ridiculed and drowned out. But as early church father John Chrysostom comments, the leaven, though it is buried, is not destroyed. Little by little, it transmutes the whole lump into its own condition. This happens with the gospel. And yet another good quote. And this teaching ties in with the previous parable that we talked about. The ungodly will always be amongst the godly trying to corrupt and pollute them. Jesus tells us this in the previous chapter of Matthew, Matthew 12, 11 to 12, where he's also talking about leaven, but saying that it can have the opposite effect too. And here's, here's the quote of scripture. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood, meaning the apostles, that he did not tell them to beware of leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the point of that is that leaven spreads and has a huge effect on whatever it's added to. When that leaven is the solid biblical teaching of the gospel, no matter what the earthly circumstances are, the gospel will spread and transform people. But in the same way, When that leaven is false teaching and heresy, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were spouting, then it can poison a lot of people and block them from the truth. And as believers, we're to stay focused on Jesus and God's word. We're to witness the gospel to as many as we can. God will expand his kingdom. Nothing and nobody can possibly stop it. He'll deal with the wicked. He'll deal with those falsely claiming to be believers. And after these two parables, Jesus tells two more parables that both illustrate the same thing. They're the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. And they're found in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. They say, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Like you said, Chris, both of these parables are illustrating the same point about the kingdom of God. In the first two parables, Jesus showed that until he returns, there will always be unbelievers mixed in with believers in the visible church, and that there's a distinct division between God's people and the wicked. 
Then he told two parables showing that while the kingdom of God was ushered into earth with humble beginnings, God has and will continue to grow it to its fullest. Now, in these two parables, Jesus shows us what a believer's reaction should be when they discover the incomparable value of being a part of the kingdom of God. Michael Green, the author of the book, The Message of Matthew, The Kingdom of Heaven, says about these parables, these two little gems of parables go together. Both stress the incalculable value of the kingdom. It is worth any sacrifice. Both stress the cost of gaining it. It will cost all we have. Tough words. And they are tough words. And John Calvin says we need them. We need the teachings of these two parables about the kingdom of God being our biggest treasure because, and I'm quoting Calvin here, we are so captivated by the allurements of the world that eternal life fades from our view and in consequence of our carnality, the spiritual graces of God are far from being held by us in the estimation which they deserve. And I think that's he's right. Convicting. Yeah, Very that's convicting. convicting. Mm -hmm. So what was Jesus's point in telling his disciples these parables? He's telling them that the kingdom of God is beyond value. It's priceless, but not everyone realizes its value. Remember, the secrets are hidden from those who do not belong to God. But Jesus is telling his disciples, all his disciples, that God has given us ears to hear and eyes to see the kingdom of God and its value. And we're to pursue the kingdom of God with an urgency at any earthly cost, just like in those parables. It would have been important for the disciples at that time to hear from Jesus that citizenship in the kingdom of God was priceless and worth any sacrifice they or we would have to make. Remember, all of Jesus's apostles and so many others throughout history paid the price for their citizenship in the kingdom of God with persecution, imprisonment, beatings, and death. Paul got this. He says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Love that. And we're going to throw one quick side note in here about the parable of the field because it's been brought up before. You know, some wonder if the man who found the treasure then covered it up and purchased it was unethical. Jesus's original audience would not have thought that there was anything unethical about this at all. D.A. Carson observes this in his commentary. Under rabbinic law, if a workman came on a treasure in a field and lifted it out, it would belong to his master, the field's owner. But here the man is careful not to lift the treasure out till he's bought the field. So the parable deals with neither the legality nor the morality of the situation, but with the value of the treasure, which is worth every sacrifice. And that brings us to the last parable in this group. Again, Jesus tells it just to his disciples. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Keeping with our Christmas theme, Jesus wraps these seven parables up very nicely for us. That's right. And there's nothing new in this parable. There's no new teaching except that Jesus points out that there's fish of every kind. 
That's not what makes them good or bad. It just means that there's people from every group that'll be saved. The only difference in the fish is good and bad. This parable reiterates everything Jesus has already told his disciples in the other six parables. The visible church, as long as it exists in the world, will be a mixture of the good and bad. It's never free from corruption and pollution from within. But God is sovereign, will grow his kingdom, and be sure that the gospel message spreads. For those of us who belong to God, our citizenship in the kingdom of God is worth far more than anything we have to sacrifice or endure on earth. But at the end of the age, when Jesus comes back, the mixing of the wicked and the righteous will come to an end. The wheat and weeds will be separated and the fish will be sorted. For those who belong to Jesus, they're going to go on to glory. For those who don't, they go on to condemnation. This parable of the fish being sorted should make us think of another teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25 titled The Final Judgment. I'll bridge this passage. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And this brings it all back to Jesus and Paul's words as to why we aren't to take vengeance on evil or wicked people. God's got it covered. In these parables, Jesus makes it clear that the king and the kingdom are secure and they're under control. So, Chris, let's do a few more parables, not from this series. I think we got some time to do a couple more. Let's do the parable of the unforgiving servant found in Matthew 18, 23 to 35. And I'll start reading that. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. I'll continue at verse 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Chris, there's a story I found on the Reformed Baptist blog. And here's the story. If somebody killed your child, could you ever forgive them? By God's grace, the raging desire for revenge might eventually die down within our hearts, but most of us would probably prefer never to see that person again, nor to help them in any way. Yet that was not the reaction of Walter Everett, a Methodist pastor in Hartford, Connecticut. 
When Michael Carlucci was convicted of manslaughter for shooting Everett's son, the bereaved father set an example that challenges all of us who claim Christ as Savior. Walter said he forgave Michael because people won't be able to understand why Jesus came and what Jesus is all about unless we forgive. Was that mere rhetoric? Not in the least. Michael became a believer while in jail, and when he was released and wanted to be married, Walter performed the ceremony. That's a that's just amazing. It gives yes. me goosebumps to think about. And the reason for him doing it is just correct. Yeah. I mean, it's just correct. Hard, but correct. <clears throat> Hard, but correct. I mean, yeah. And I, I just love it. And that story shows that this man understood Jesus's parable. Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant after a series of teachings he gives to the disciples. Chapter 18 of Matthew opens with the disciples asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? They were probably looking for a qualification list or something like that, that they could aspire to. I can't even believe they asked that question, but they I do. I can't either. Yeah. But Jesus answers that only those who humble themselves and have faith like a child will enter the kingdom. Definitely not the answer that they expected and probably not what they wanted. Jesus then goes on telling them to resist the temptation of sin at all costs, even if it means cutting a foot or a hand off that's causing you to sin. That's hyperbole on Jesus's part, but he's making a good point. That's right. Then after this, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. And we're not going to get into this one deeply, but basically Jesus says that if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one goes astray, he'll leave the 99 to bring the one back. And there'll be rejoicing when he does bring it back. The point of this parable is that none that God has chosen to save will be lost. Even if someone backslides, if they are one of the elect, Jesus will bring them back at some point. This parable is also a directive to the church to do what's necessary to bring a sinning church member back into the fold of the church. Then after this parable, Jesus teaches how to handle a brother or sister sinning against you. First, you go one-on-one -on -one to the person and try to resolve it. If that doesn't work, bring in another one or two trusted people to help. And if the issue still doesn't get resolved, take it to the church leadership. If the person won't listen to the church leaders, they're to be excommunicated. Then it's after this that Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive a brother who sins against me? And Jesus answers with the mysterious 77 times. Then he launches into the parable of the unforgiving servant that we just read. So how are all these related? Jesus starts by telling his followers they need to humble themselves before God and rid themselves of any sin that's clinging to them. Once they are dependent and humble and not immersed in sin any longer, they'll be able to be church leaders and execute church discipline, which is what the parable of the lost sheep and the guide to resolving conflict are all about. The goal of church discipline is always to bring a brother or sister to repentance and to restore them to the congregation. So in light of that, Peter's question makes sense. He's saying, okay, I get what we need to do for a brother or sister who sins against us, but what if someone's a repeat offender or a repeat, repeat seven times over offender? <laughs> How many times do we have to do all of this before we brush the dust off our sandals and walk away from them? And that might be a reasonable question Peter asked, given that part of the instructions Jesus gave his apostles in Matthew 10 was, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. 
Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. But remember, Jesus said that he came to cause division between believers and unbelievers and unity between brothers and sisters of Christ. So Jesus's words to his apostles about shaking the dust off your feet and leaving the town, in other words, throwing your hands up and being done with someone, is only meant for when dealing with unbelievers. But between believers, there's to be unity and unlimited forgiveness, hence the 77 times answer Jesus gives. Absolutely. D.A. Carson says this about Peter asking Jesus if he should forgive a brother seven times. And I'm quoting here. In rabbinic discussion, the consensus was that a brother might be forgiven a repeated sin three times. On the fourth, there's no forgiveness. Peter, thinking himself big-hearted, volunteers seven times in his answer to his own question. So Peter thinks he's showing Jesus he gets all the teaching that Jesus gave them. They were to exceed what the Pharisees were practicing. Peter probably thought seven times was showing an incredible amount of humility and grace and obedience to God. But after Jesus tells him he hasn't grasped the teaching as well as he thought because forgiveness to a brother or sister is to be unlimited. Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. Right. So let's unpack the parable. The ESV study Bible notes help put things into perspective for this parable. When you put the value of a talent from the New Testament into today's value, it's equal to 20 years wages. So if we use 30,000 a year as current wages, that would make a talent equal to $600,000. So the 10,000 talents that the servant owed the king would be equal to $6 billion. Again, Jesus is using hyperbole to make a point. We are the servants who owed our king, God, the equivalent of $6 billion. Basically meaning we owed a debt we could never have any chance to repay. And this, of course, is a reference to our sin against God causing separation from it. A chasm we could never, ever close on our own. God knew we were helpless to help ourselves and needed mercy. So King Jesus closed the gap and forgave our debt at no small cost to himself. Even to a rich king, $6 billion would be an enormous amount to just eat. Jesus forgiving our debt also came at an enormous cost, the cost of leaving heaven, forsaking his glory, confining himself to an earthly body, being mocked, spit at, beat, persecuted, and ultimately killed. That's what our entrance into the kingdom of God cost. And in light of that, anything a brother or sister in Christ does to us, no matter how awful, pales in comparison. Again, using the ESV study notes, let's move on with the parable. A denarii was a day's wages. So if we put it in today's terms, we'll say someone works eight hours and they make $20 an hour. That's $160 a day. The fellow servant, who's a brother or sister in Christ, owed the servant who was just forgiven $6 billion, 100 denarii, or $16,000 in today's terms. Now, 16,000 may seem like a lot of money, but the application here seems pretty obvious. You're comparing 16,000 to 6 billion. And there's a few things to note. The original servant who owed 6 billion didn't ask for debt forgiveness. He asked for more time to pay it back. He would have done that by working as an unpaid servant for the king. By completely forgiving the debt, the king was doing far more than the servant asked. Because let's be honest, 
he could work the rest of his life, every hour of his life, and he never would have paid back that big a debt. He would have spent the rest of his life as a slave, and he wouldn't even put a dent into what he owed. Right. And what's the servant's response to receiving mercy and grace beyond what he could have ever expected and beyond what no one else would ever have done? His fellow servant asked for the same thing he initially did. He doesn't ask for the debt to be forgiven either, only for more time to pay it back. It should have immediately brought to mind what the king had done for him, but it doesn't. Despite the incredible and interminable amount of grace that this servant received, he has not been transformed at all. Forget the fact that he doesn't pay the grace forward. He doesn't even give his fellow servant the same thing he asked for himself, more time. Instead, he takes him by the throat and has him thrown into the debtor's prison. And when the fellow servants find out what he did, they tell the king, who calls him wicked. The king expected the servant would have learned compassion and forgiveness based on his showing the servant incredible compassion and forgiveness, but he doesn't. Instead, the servant shows no comprehension of understanding what the king did for him. So instead of treating the servant with grace and compassion, the king then treats him with justice. He throws him in the debtor's prison until he can pay the $6 billion back, which is obviously never. So the servant will spend the rest of his life in prison. Yeah, and there's no way he could have paid it back from prison. Nope. So again, while on the surface, this parable seems to be about how believers should forgive, and it is, it also again shows the divide between believers and unbelievers. Even after the servant received incredible grace and forgiveness, a symbol of God's gospel message, he couldn't comprehend it, and he was therefore unchanged by it. And the reason he couldn't comprehend it goes back to what we looked at earlier. Those who have not had their heart regenerated are blinded to the truth of the gospel, and therefore they're unchanged by it. Right. So why does Jesus tell this parable on the heels of the teachings about church discipline and Peter's question about how many times they need to forgive someone who sinned against them? Well, the answer is that in light of what those who belong to God have been given, there is nothing that a brother or sister can do that is too big or too bad for the church to not try and bring them back into the fold or for a fellow believer not to forgive them, no matter how many times they offend. Because we have been shown at what cost our forgiveness came, we who are within the kingdom of God should consider it a privilege to pay that forgiveness forward and give the watching world a glimpse of Jesus. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Amen to that. Okay, so let's do one more. This one's from Matthew 20. It's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And I'm reading here. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, 
you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. I'll continue. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. As we said, all the parables of Jesus are about the kingdom of God. In this parable, we see how God deals with the citizens of the kingdom, his children. First, a little bit of context is needed here. In biblical times, grapes were one of the most valuable commodities. And that's because of what you make out of grapes, wine. Vineyards and wine are recurring themes in scripture that are equated with the goodness of God. When Noah got off the ark, the first thing he does after worshiping God is plant a vineyard. Amos talks about God restoring to Israel the promised land and their vineyards. He says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Ezekiel 2 runs with this same theme. Ezekiel 28, 26 says, they will live in it securely and they will build houses, plant vineyards and live securely when I execute judgments upon all who scorn them round about them. Then they will know that I am the Lord, their God. And there are lots of other examples, but there's just a few for you. So it makes perfect sense that Jesus would use a vineyard for a parable. It would have triggered to the disciples that God is good to his children. And Chris, in contrast to vineyards as a symbol of God's goodness to his people, and again, showing a divide between those who belong to the kingdom of God and those who don't, the wine press of God is an instrument of judgment and wrath on the wicked. Joel 3.14 says, come go down for the wine press is full, the vats overflow for their wickedness is great. And Revelation 14, which tells of the second coming of Jesus and the punishment on the wicked says, so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And for literal context, anyone who knows about vineyards and winemaking knows that the grapes have a very short harvest time. Picking them just at the right time could make or break your wine. It wasn't unusual for vineyard owners to hire day laborers to help with the grape picking. And that's what the vineyard owner in this parable does. After hiring the first round of laborers, he realizes he has more work than needs to be done. And there are workers standing around. So he hires another round of workers. He does this a total of four times. It's only the first set of workers hired early in the morning that he promises to pay them a denarius, which was the going rate for a day's work. To the second group, he says he'll pay them what is right. And with the last two groups, he doesn't promise any set wage. And at the end of the day, he pays all the workers of denarius, those who worked all day and those who worked an hour. The humanness in us can probably understand why the guys hired first were upset and thought the vineyard owner was being unfair. I mean, they worked all day in the heat. 
and they worked a lot longer. When they complain, the master responds by basically telling them, look, I gave you what I promised and I'm the master of the business. And if I want to be extra generous with some, that's my business, not yours. You know, this is a pretty easy parable to interpret. God's the almighty creator, master, and sustainer of the universe. And as God, he's got the right to determine how much grace he wants to give his people. He has the right to determine everything that he gives his people or doesn't, you know? He's not obligated to give anyone grace, let alone the same grace to all people or the same gifts or anything. The fact that he gives anyone any grace at all is amazing. And as we've seen before, if all God gave us was our salvation, it would be more than we deserve. Remember, this parable is about God's dealing with his people. All of God's people get what God has promised them, salvation. Yet it is also true that God gives some of his people more than others. But understand that since the only thing God owes us is his wrath, we aren't in a position to complain about what God gives us or gives to others. Just as the master of the vineyard wasn't unjust in how he treated his laborers, God is never unjust. Klein Snodgrass, author of Stories with Intent, A Comprehensive Guide to the Parables of Jesus, says this. I'm quoting here. We worry about justice, but too often we dress up as justice what is in reality jealousy, or we use justice as a weapon to limit generosity. And he's exactly right. Mm -hmm. We use justice as a mask for what is really jealousy. Jealousy over what others have, even other believers. And that's nothing new. Remember, the apostles asked Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? John and James requested to sit on Jesus's right and left in heaven. When Jesus told Peter he was going to suffer and be killed because of Jesus, Peter's first response is, well, what's going to happen to John? Yeah, I know. And all of this bickering and stuff, it just reminds me that last week we talked about the woman that Jesus called a dog. We need to be humble like that and accept this as truth. Absolutely. You know, it's so easy to fall into thinking that God somehow owes us something, especially when we see other believers being given material wealth, good health, great families, children who are following the Lord, and lots of other stuff. Jesus is reminding his disciples, disciples meaning us, that all we were really owed was justice. And if we really got what we deserve, justice, like the first servant got, we could have never stand. We could never pay back the debt that we owed. Grace, by definition, is not owed. So we have no right to complain when it's shown to others as much as it's shown to us or if it's shown to others more than us. Grace is never fair. Nope. If it was, it wouldn't be grace. Exactly. And finally, Jesus says, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This shows that God does not distribute awards and blessings as one might expect. And we end this episode on parables with this encouraging thought to those of us who have been given salvation. We will recognize that everything we have, even including our understanding of Jesus's parables, is by God's grace alone. Amen to that. And that's a good place to end for today. Have a blessed day, everyone.